Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I remember having a conversation with someone who didn't yet have kids. When I asked her what she was not looking forward to when it came to having children, she said changing nappies. I told her keeping your kid clean is the easiest part. I, like most parents, am haunted by the eternal question, is my child happy? Now, not in this exact moment, of course, because let me tell you, a five-year-old will have mood swings wild enough to rival a teenager's. But just overall, is my child happy? Am I raising him in a way that will keep him safe, but also prepare him for the wider world, which is definitely not safe? Am I doing enough to raise him in a way that replicates the things that I loved about my childhood but rectifies the things that I didn't? These are the questions that will keep you up at night. Welcome to episode 7 of Black Ballad Presents The Survival Guide, the parenting podcast from the perspective of black mums in Britain. We mix real life experiences with data and experts and on today's episode we're talking about childhood or more specifically how can we as parents and caregivers create the best kind of childhood for our precious little bubbles. To get into this I spoke to the expert of experts and I'll let her introduce herself. My name is Liz Pemberton otherwise known as the Black Nursery Manager Um, I have recently set up a consultancy and training company called the Black Nursery Manager Limited. My career really has been shaped by working in early education and having a keen interest in working for the livelihoods and well-being of Black children. I am a Black woman who is fiercely, fiercely, passionately encouraged by black womanhood and black motherhood I feel very strongly about injustice and how the early years is kind of dismissed in the narrative around education and I am somebody who believes really in the rights of black children at a time where the whole society our our voice within the society's marginalized for the majority of my career I've worked for the family business which has been day nurseries and I am really excited about what the future kind of holds as I launch into this training and consultancy where I'm going to be talking to other professionals within the early years sector about how they can ensure that their provisions are actively anti-racist And I'm aware that that is a big buzzword and I don't want it to get lost in the whole narrative of things, but to really look deeply into early years provisions and ensure that the practice that is taking place 
in those provisions is actively ensuring that the livelihood and the well-being of black children in those spaces is being examined. As a quick reminder, all the interviews in this series of The Survival Guide were recorded in and amongst the chaos of lockdown in a house with two children. So you might hear one or two little voices doing backing vocals during the course of our conversation. But now to business. There was a period in my life where I wasn't sure that I wanted to have children. Could I really bring an innocent little baby into this dark and evil world was the question that I asked myself and I know that I'm not alone. As part of the Black Ballad Motherhood Survey launched in January of this year 2020, we asked women who had decided not to have children why. As one respondent eloquently put it, as a queer black woman, I'm all too aware of the oppression and dangers that exist to human bodies. The economic, political and ecological state of the world is not one that I could feel safe birthing my black child into. Or, as another respondent simply put, this society is not conducive to raising black children. Of course, some of us recognise these factors and decide we want to procreate anyway. The question then becomes how can we create a world inside a wider, more hostile world where our black children can feel safe and they can thrive? Especially in those early years, which studies have shown are so pivotal to a child's development. So who better for me to ask than Liz? The word that always comes to mind is joy. You need to make sure that joy is something that is at the forefront of anything that you do in the home environment, in the nurseries that you are looking for, in the childminders that you are selecting. Is joy present and are environments being created where joy is celebrated? Even at the times where your children, you may feel they are testing your patience. That is what children are supposed to do. They are testing the boundaries. That is what children are supposed to do. And you mentioned about this first five years of life being quite pivotal in terms of character forming and in terms of the hardwiring of the brain. Neurologically, there have been lots of things and papers and theories kind of written around that. But we know there are lots of factors that impact at different times for children. Yes, it's true. There is a lot of connections that are made in those first five years of life. It's not to say that once they're made, that's it, the end, but it is to say that there are some experiences that exist within our bodies and memories. You will know, we will all know as adults that are formed in very early childhood that set the tone for the rest of your life. And it is important that those first five years, those environments that you create are environments that are led by joy and environments that are, I guess, dictated by the child more so than they are the adult. So we talk about child-led or child-initiated play and adult-led and adult-initiated play. And play should be really focused on what the child wants to do to some extent, follow their lead you know, as children are making sense of the world around them, the environment that you create should be based on the observations that you've made of your child whilst they are in the house or that would be happening in practice, hopefully in the nurseries that you select or in the, you know, the child minding, whatever childcare you choose. But making sure that you're really clear about the environment that you are creating, that it's led by what your child has shown you they like to do. 
building on those play experiences and learning how to play. People think it's a given that when you become a parent, you automatically become a practitioner. And that is not the case. There is a process of learning what childhood is about, because for some of us, childhood was a long, a long time ago. By the time, you know, parenthood comes for some people, playing doesn't come naturally. Having a playful kind of energy can be sometimes very uncomfortable. You know, 24-7 being a CBBS presenter, <laughs> I, you know, that's that's tiresome. And when you're a practitioner or you work in early years, that's what you're trained to do. But you're also looking for, I guess, a natural disposition. When I'm recruiting, I'm looking for that natural disposition because I understand that it's key if you're coming to work in the childcare sector. But if you're a parent, that's not always going to come naturally. So learning to play so that you can facilitate the environment. And when I say learning to play, learning to roll around, learning to be comfortable with the fact that your space is going to be messy, encouraging Mm. children to make mess and encouraging them to understand that there's a process whereby after mess is made, there is going to be tidy up time. So we're going to restore the environment, you know, back into some kind of order, if that is something that is really kind of like gives you a bee in your bonnet. But also Mm. having permanent things there so there is a constant kind of role play area in your house or there is a constant space where things are just there you know the paint's just there the cornflower is just there the gloop is just there so that children can go and access that because what you're creating as a parent as an adult is that secure base you will know being a parent that your children will come and find you whether you're on the toilet whether you're on the phone whether you're typing whether you're doing work you know your children will come and find you they know where you are they'll come and check in with you but then they'll go back to doing what they are doing and that might be solitary play but it might be playing with a sibling or a cousin or you know a family member but children need to know that there's always something going on and you will find that children find joy in the simplest things could be a cardboard box You know, people often talk about the fact they've bought expensive toys, but the child prefers the box. That is normal, you know. And when they express themselves, whether that's in the middle of the supermarket or in the aisle and they start to kick off, let them do that. It's an expression of emotion. When I'm angry, I don't want anybody to tell me to calm down. I want people to say, you know what, Liz, be angry, be upset, cry if you need to. We talk about making sure that we're creating emotional safe spaces for ourselves as adults. We're encouraging other people, our friends, to speak about when they don't feel happy. The same should be done with with children. They don't feel happy, yeah, cry. It's important to cry. It's important that we don't try and limit children and keep them in this space where emotionally we should make them robotic, particularly when it comes to black boys. So I think when we think about what parents can do, it is just about creating joyous spaces which are child-led to an extent and really observing what our children like to do, because that's how we get to know our children, by looking at them and observing them and talking to them, really encouraging them to speak about how do they feel, what would they like to do, and what would you like to do? Is there room for negotiation? And sometimes that could be a clash culturally, because as Black people, sometimes our own childhoods impact on how we raise our children. You know, that, again, it's it's natural, And we have to make the decision whether we lean into that or pull away if we felt that it was harmful. You know, what are we consciously doing to not represent those kinds of same things that we had in our childhood? What are we doing to kind of recreate 
childhood, reimagine childhood for our own children and the childcare choices that we're making, are the other settings echoing the same sentiments that we have in our mm-hmm. homes? Because there is a choice when it comes to childcare. The choice is limited when it comes to schools. But when it comes to childcare, there are lots of different options. You don't have to put your children in nursery at all. You can put your children in nursery for three days or for two days, you know, but it's about balance. But I think for black childhood, it is about making sure that the joy that we create is consciously thought about every day, all the time. Because once that first five years of childhood is over, that that child possibly is going to school. Although we know there's also a move towards homeschooling children now, which I think is fantastic. Again, it has massive benefits because you're still being able to control the environment to an extent. We have to think about, as I said, lots of different models around how we facilitate joy, how we are led by our children, how we celebrate with them, how we speak to them, how we speak to ourselves, how we feel at different times in the day, and how that is dictated by our environment. I know what makes me happy as an adult. I'm not going to suppose that that would also make any children I engage with happy. I'm going to follow their lead. Yeah, that's really good advice. And it's really kind of simple advice. Not saying it's easy, but it's simple because Mm. I guess the thing is that coming to parenting, you can feel quite inadequate as you're working through your own like kind of childhood and the good, the bad that happened when you were a child or whether it's comparing yourself to others. And there's, and I think especially like as black parents, sometimes there's this whole kind of like respectability around how do our children act? How do older members of our family expect our children to act? How do people look at you when your child's kicking off in the middle of the supermarket and what are they thinking? And all of that kind of stuff and even whether you're quote unquote a young mom whether you're a single parent even whether I just feel like even me like I've been in settings where I've had people look to like my child's kicking off whatever they're looking to see if I'm married or they're wondering how old I am and all that kind of stuff so I think there's a big kind of like confidence Mm -hmm. issue that can happen especially amongst black women when there's all these like different stereotypes we're blamed for gang crime we're blamed for this we're like if the father's not around oh you can't raise boys it's like do you get what I mean so how as parents specifically black women specifically black women do you have any tips for kind of overcoming that gap in confidence that there can be because of these expectations and what people say or see or expect from you as a black woman raising children Mm. and it's really interesting that you say these things because one of the biggest barriers for black women and motherhood and black women and livelihood and black women and existing is respectability politics. And one thing that I always say is burn out respectability politics, yeah? I'm not here to please you. I'm not here to play into your trope or your expectation of me. I'm here to live in my truth. And my truth is very individualized and very personalized. So when you ask about advice that I could give to black mothers in particular about, you know, how they overcome these confidence things, It's about doing work on self and work on self is about exploring who you are as an individual. And that, as we know, doesn't always coincide with the time in which motherhood arrives because motherhood arrives at different times for different black women. But we shouldn't shy away from the fact that it happens. It happens to every woman. Black women are crucified at 
every step that we take. And it's not to get into this victimhood mentality, but it is to acknowledge that respectability politics plays a large part in how we live and how we are perceived. And I think, like I said, this work on self is so, so key. Really spending time to get to know you. And it sounds really kind of simplistic. It sounds really kind of straightforward. And it's not. It takes a lot of time. I think that this need to present the 2.0 family, the black family where, you know, we're here with the mom, we're married to the man that we fell in love with when we were 16. He then became our husband. He flew us to Paris to propose. Then we became <laughs> pregnant a year after. And then we had a beautiful life. We had a lovely house. He earned so much money that I can stay at home, live my best life, pop to the hairdressers, nail salon with the best boogie, you know, and my child is just, these are the fairy tales, right? That we, all women are told, but black women particularly, I think we aspire to it so much because there is so much pain that we are carrying from lots of different things. And I talked to you about my childhood and my childhood was idyllic. Yeah, it was great. It was fantastic. However, there are still expectations that I place on myself that are not realistic about motherhood and about being a black woman. I'm 38. I have no children. Now, there is a, an agenda there that's set by wider society, by my peers, by other black women, by other black friends that may tell me, oh, you know, time's running out. You got to get a move on. So, you know, what's going to happen, Liz, if you don't? But then there's an, also another side of me, uh, another facet of my personality where, you know, I got married a year ago and that was fantastic. It was excellent. It was beautiful. And that kind of, it's really interesting because it discounts some of the negative narrative around, oh, children, 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 because then there's also this, wow, you know, she got married to this amazing guy. But I remember before meeting my husband, there was an expectation that, well, you know, it's going to be pretty hard for you to meet a black guy now. Because all the black guys that are out there, none of them are decent and they're going to have about 10 kids. And what are you going to do? And maybe you should settle. And I had always said, no, 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 listen. It's not about settling or not settling. Even that as language is dangerous, it's destructive. And it means that it knocks and attempts to eat away at confidence. Whether I choose to be with a man who has three children already, the woman that he might have had three children with might have passed away. Does that then discount him from being an eligible bachelor? No. Mm. And so we have to look at these narratives that we build and these places that we put ourselves, which attempt to chip away at our confidence. Me having a strong sense of myself and knowing who I am and knowing what I desire and what I want and what I deserve, that has been shaped by my early childhood, my adolescence and my life choices. But I understand the influence of my mom in that. I understand the influence of my dad and I understand the influence of people that I have chosen to have around me as friends, because this is another thing. There is a choice about who you should have around you. I have no qualms in locking people off. It's no long thing. It doesn't mean anything, you know, in that sense, if it's impacting on my ability to live my truth and be happy. But as I said, respectability politics plays a big part in how our confidence is shaped as black women my aim is to live very happily and also to be aware of the choice that we all have as black women as to whether we want to have children or not. This mm -hmm. is another conversation. You know, who is to say there's this assumption that because we are women, because we are black women, we all must want to have children. That is not the case for every black woman. 
That is not the case at all. And again, it feeds into this narrative. So that's why I said it all comes back to working on oneself, being really intentional about who you are and what you want and what you desire, and that you deserve to be happy in whatever that form, you know, should take. Happiness means something different to different Black women. I always say this, but we have to understand we are not a homogenous group. Mm. All of our desires are not the same. And it is really important that we are not living for other people, that we are only living for ourselves and what makes us as individuals truly, truly happy and satisfied, because that will erase a lot of the issues around thinking about this confidence and what are people going to think if, you know, what are people, you, you know what you are doing in this mm-hmm. life. And if you don't know what you were doing in this life, you, you must take time to step away and sit down and think about what you were doing in yeah. this life. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Liz could be my life coach any day. Honestly, this conversation that we had spoke to me on so many different levels. But let's focus in on childcare for just a moment. As we spoke about in episode four, childcare is a major expense and seeing as it's where a significant amount of our income goes and most likely will be where our children spend the most amount of time outside the home, choosing a childcare setting is not a decision to be taken lightly. When it came to choosing a nursery for my son to attend, I really, really wanted to get it right. I wanted a place where he would feel safe and affirmed, where a high energy little black boy would not be viewed as a threat, a place whose educational philosophy aligned with my own and whose discipline policy wouldn't marginalise him. I asked parents in Twitter for suggestions on what questions I should be asking when I visited. I listened to other black parents and read their resources and checklists. And I went to nursery visits armed with questions and a checklist of my own. From the Black Ballad Motherhood survey, one interesting finding was that when it came to what was important to them when choosing a childcare provider, women 
under 25 ranked diversity of staff and diversity of children much higher than women over 25. I asked Liz for her thoughts on this generational difference. There's a heightened awareness now, particularly with mothers and fathers who are 25 and under about how we are perceived by wider society Mm. and where that perception starts because we cannot be under any illusion that black children are treated differently to non-black children and I don't say black children in comparison to white children I specifically say black children in comparison to non-black children there are different perceptions that exist within black boyhood then there is, you know, between any other kind of boyhood and there's a vilification of the black boy from under five and those vilification kind of things start from the adults that are responsible for caring for them, whether that be in a nursery setting, whether that be in a mother and toddler group, whether that be in the hospital when the child's born, there is a perception and I think Parents recognise that now because we are astutely and acutely aware of how damaging that perception can be when it comes to engaging with black boys in particular. But of course, that's not to escape or erase the fact that black girls under five or also, you know, the adultification of black girls under five. That is something that's also very prevalent and recognised by black parents. So there is an awareness of that. And I definitely would say there is a difference in how, you know, I'm going to say, quote, unquote, older parents. I'm even uncomfortable with that because there's a perception that whatever age women decide to have children, it's an age that suits them, okay? Mm -hmm. And there was this, like, this long-perpetuated myth that, you know, if you're under 25, you're a young mom. If you're over 25, you're you're an old mom, you know? And this, it creates such a division because... Generationally, there are a lot of things that different people, of course, experience, but there is also a common understanding that having a black child is an act of resistance. Having a black son, you know, it's an act of resistance because there are so many factors that come into play. Mm. And, And in answer to your question, I do, of course, believe that we are, and when I say we, you know, black women who have children, Black women who are responsible for caring for children, there is an awareness, there is a heightened awareness, but the diversity of your staff team means very little if nothing's been filtered down from the top or filtered up from the bottom. There has to be an awareness of, there is no point having every kind of practitioner from every part of the world if they haven't got an awareness of the societal impacts of stereotypes and perceptions of black children and how harmful and damaging the perpetuation of these stereotypes is in the early years you know diversity means very little it's a buzzword it means nothing if nothing's happening underneath really to the core of what is happening how practitioners are trained how practitioners are spoken to about wider social issues that have a direct impact on practice and how practitioners are engaging but it doesn't surprise me that the motherhood survey brought up those results because in my experience a lot of the families that I engage with are mothers who are under 25. They are mothers who are working, studying, trying to make sure that they have as best opportunities you know in their lives so that their children can flourish. They are mothers that are not earning a lot of money 
They're mothers that are relying on a government system that marginalizes them. Mm. You know, they are mothers who, in some cases, don't have the support of the fathers of those children. But they are also mothers that have support from wider family. So their own mothers, their own mm. grandmothers, aunties, godmothers. And so the village of, I guess, womanhood in raising their black children, their black boys in particular, is very, very strong. And I think when we talk about family structures and perceptions of practitioners and wider society on the raising of black children, we mustn't forget that the role of fathers, uncles, brothers, godbrothers, these people fill really important spots and spaces. But as a nursery manager, for instance, you know, it's been something that's been at the forefront of my mind because I am a black woman who manages a nursery where all of the children now are black and brown. I'm astutely aware of the importance of making sure that there is an involvement from black men, whether that be in the role of being a practitioner, an external practitioner, for instance, like I have chest tutor coming in, a guy called Asante. I have drawn on Craig Pinkney coming in to do, you know, external work with the boys in my setting because I recognise there's importance to bring men in where they wouldn't ordinarily be. And the early years space is often dominated by women, white women at that, and white women from a particular class. And sometimes the need to have these conversations explicitly around what they understand with regards to black community. Black society, black childhood, there is a need to probe and ask those questions. And they are questions I don't shy away from if I'm interviewing white staff, you know, from the jump. It's important that I get to really understand and peel back those layers so that diversity isn't just something that exists on the surface. Not all black women want to go and send their children to a nursery where everybody's black. That's a real conversation. That's, that is something that happens, you know. The sight of lots of black people for some black mothers is not something that they desire. They want to go to the nursery where everybody's white because it's mm-hmm. about respectability politics. It's about what they associate with quality. So we must as well say this. It's really important to not assume black and black equates quality for all people because it doesn't. It really, sadly, it really doesn't. I I mean, any woman that has that perspective is kind of also playing into notions of racism, which is such a shame. I think from the conversation, there are are nurseries or there are early year care places where they are run and owned by black people, but they don't necessarily have the same mentality. All skin folk are not kin folk. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean anything. There are black people mm. in government. What are they doing? Yeah, there are <laughs> black people that I know in my family. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not really having that conversation. And what I'm here to say is that that's why I've branded myself the black nursery manager. So you know, I'm blickety black from the start. It's my joke. <laughs> And these are the conversations, as I said, again, we need to have. And I can tell you many people that have taken their children out of my nursery to send them to the nursery down the road because there are more white children, because they're going to speak differently, because that's going to set them up somehow for life. When the police stop you, we're all black in this. Yeah. Mm. When the white woman's looking at you in the supermarket, they don't care about what nursery you've gone to. You're black. The end. Mm. Mm. Anti-blackness deeply, deeply resides in our psyches and in how we construct the world. It exists in all of us to some degree. It's about how much we're going to let that come to the surface because it's an active choice that we have to make. 
when I'm thinking about how I staff the nursery, I consciously make a decision to put black women in positions of senior leadership. That's a conscious decision. I consciously think about the visual of having a dark-skinned black woman as my deputy manager. It's mm. important, a dark-skinned black woman with a gold tooth and door knuckle <laughs> earrings, it's important that yeah. visual speaks and it's loud for the black kids. Do you know what mm. I mean? It's very, very, the psychology of it is so, so, so multifaceted and so deeply embedded. But that's what black mm. children need to see. FYI, the other voice you heard in that bit of our conversation was the lovely Christina, our producer, whose name you will be familiar with if you stay to listen to the credits. Now, as what often happens when you get into good conversation with fellow black women, you end up covering a lot of ground. And Liz had some important thoughts to share about black womanhood. To be honest, I can't even think of a nice slick way to package this so it ties in with our episode theme. But I definitely think it's worth sharing. So yeah, just listen. It's about this narrative that we are sold about black womanhood. And historically, we've looked at, you know, how we've been positioned as mummies, how we've been positioned as caregivers. We are the automatic people that white women have gone to historically to look after not only our own children, but their children as a priority. We have been looked at by black men as being the ones who are responsible solely for the care of their children. Even if those children have not been born from us, the expectation has been that we will look after, we will accommodate, we will be the all-loving, all-giving auntie, mother, girlfriend, baby, moms. Yeah, and we've taken on those roles and we've experienced them in varying degrees because what it's also done is then it shaped our experience of Black womanhood. Then we believe that we must be all things to all people, particularly to Black men. And the rejection of that narrative is met with confrontation sometimes. What do you mean you don't want to have no kids? Like I spoke about, you know, why you're 38, like, oh, yeah. You know, Liz, are you kind of worried? Am I kind of worried about what? You don't see how I live in my life. I'm very, very nice at the moment. And should me and my husband choose to have children today, tomorrow, next year, when I'm 41, trust me, don't, you know, do not worry about my womb. This is what I tell people. Stop worrying about my ovaries. Yeah, I'm nice. But even I, I think about conversations my husband's told me that he's had in the barbershop. Yo, man's 43 and like, what's going on? You know, when are you... And this constant pushback, you know, my husband's saying, well, you know, it's a priority for me to find a wife. And that was a priority to him, but it's not a priority to all black men. And it's also not a priority to all black women. Some black women don't want to get married. They don't want to be a wife. I wanted a beautiful day and I wanted to put on a beautiful dress. Do you know what I mean? That was my choice. But I do think we, all of us, we black women, we need to stop putting these pressures on one another inadvertently. A woman came in my DMs the other day and was like, oh, Liz, you know, any babies yet? Before you even ask me how I am, ask me any babies yet. Are you okay? (laughs) That lucky's just got closed because people are not well. And there's this expectation of an intrusion into something that I believe is very personal. That's like you asked me what sex position I had. You know, that's <laughs> not, it's as personal as that. We would never dream of saying, well, do you like a druggie? Or do you like, I mean, you know, we would never dream of doing that. But this is where we are now. People ask you about your womb. And it really, you know, we've got to have a conversation about it. It's not appropriate. And it's none of your business. And as black women, we must do better. If we really want to create this thing that we talk about in terms of a sisterhood, we must understand boundaries. We must understand and respect them. 
Due to COVID-19, the childcare sector has taken a real battering, while at the same time being expected to play its part in keeping the economy moving by opening their doors so that parents can get back to work. The people that look after our children play such important roles in their development, but like many other key workers, they aren't given the respect that they deserve. And that isn't necessarily a new development either, as Liz explains. So I guess over the 16 years that I've been a nursery manager, there are a lot of spaces that I've occupied, which have meant that I've been able to see things from lots of different perspectives. And one of the key things that I've seen has been how government policy has impacted quality of provision. And it's really, really interesting because when the Sure Start Centres were developed by Labour government, it was presented as being really necessary for the well-being of parents and children. And there were loads of beautiful purpose-built children's centres. There were lots of shiny new toys. There were, you know, brilliant, beautiful provisions. And, you know, the drawing on family support workers and health visitors and speech and language therapists. And there was all of this injection into that. But I think one thing that was overlooked was the childcare workforce because staff well-being and the upskilling of practitioners and the workforce and the payment, the potential earnings for the workforce was really overlooked. There were some schemes which allowed, you know, salaries to be increased. But when we kind of looked at that in comparison to other sectors, it was still very, very low. And I think that was something that I kind of really recognised in how the workforce was being forgotten. There was no upskilling of practitioners and there was no kind of observation of what we could do to motivate practitioners within the workforce. And we see time and time again, even up to now, how the early years workforce is more or less kind of forgotten and pushed into the carpet. Mm. And the perception is that they just go and play with the children. They just wipe Mm. noses. It's just a play and stay. It's somewhere for children to be whilst parents are at work. And the undervaluing of the role means that the workforce is forgotten because it plays into these same tropes of, well, they're not very educated, are they? They're the girls that didn't get onto the hairdressing course. They don't really understand things. And even though there was, you know, this insertion of the early years degree, it was always an afterthought. Because when we look at kind of primary school teachers, reception teachers, early years teachers in schools, the perception is very different around what people think is a worthwhile job, a worthwhile role. And today's government, as we know, do nothing to support, you know, the professional standards or view of that workforce. And it has an absolute ripple effect. It impacts on people's psyche and it impacts on the workforce's ability to feel worthy. Shout out to all the amazing childcare practitioners who are nurturing our children, teaching them how to take their first steps into independence and providing them with their first experience of education outside of the home. You do not get the ratings that you deserve. But just know that in the hustle and bustle of modern life, you are part of the village that raises our children. Thanks once again for tuning in to this episode of Black Ballad Presents The Survival Guide. If you haven't yet subscribed in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the Acast app, CastBox, etc, 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 why on earth not? 
And please also remember to rate, review and share with your people. This episode was written by me, Janzella Benson, and produced by Christina Moore of Don't Skip. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.